Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Buschner. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Matt and Franz. Hello, Matt. There's no guest today. It's just you and me. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to me too, yes. So I thought today uh, we've been talking a lot about policy. I think we have also kind of established that you know, right now we are in a bit of a policy vacuum at the moment. Yeah. So uh, often we ask our guests what they're doing scientifically, what they're working on. I thought today, let's ask ourselves what we're doing scientifically and let's focus the show about us. So we're going to say policy at the moment, because of the vacuum, policy doesn't matter. Uh, and we can rename the show... France Ma- Matter. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's go with that. Okay. So um, let me throw you a question. Matt, how are you pushing forward outward the scientific frontier at the moment? What are you doing? Well, big question. Yeah, so... Recently, a lot of time has been spent um, by me and others, by you and others, uh, working on the returns to higher education. So we've been working on this, looking at, okay, you go to university, how does that affect your life? How does it affect your earnings in particular compared with if you hadn't gone to university and how that varies uh, depending on what university you went to and what course you did. That's right. And we discussed that in one of the episodes quite extensively. Yeah, with Laura van der Erf from from the IFS. So we talked about that. Um, And in addition to looking at undergraduate degrees, we've also been doing some work on postgraduate degrees. So I'm not going to talk about that because that isn't published yet by the the Department (laughs) of Education. And so uh, we can't talk about that. But I think it's a topic we'll come back to uh, in the future when that's uh, uh, available. And it's interesting because it does link a bit, I think, with postgraduate returns, thinking about one of the things Sam Friedman was talking about in a previous episode, how middle classes and the kind of better off, the advantaged, leverage their resources, uh, whether that's economic or cultural or social, uh, to improve the position of themselves and of their children. And education is one of those areas. And now that we've had the target of 50% of young people going to university. We've pretty much reached that kind of Blair target. Um, And so if everybody's getting an undergraduate degree, then how do you then differentiate yourselves? Well, the people who have uh, advantage and uh, have the money to be able to do so can defer going into the labor market, stay at university another year, get another degree, get the master's degree, and then have an advantage into the labor market. Now, not everyone can do that. So again, it links in with what Sam was saying about how people who already have some advantage can then leverage that to get themselves a kind of positional advantage again uh, in education. So that's something I've been working on. Um, but there are, there are other things as well. Other things. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So You have more than one project? Uh, well, yeah. So there are other projects. And uh, in fact, I have more than one project with you as a, <laughs> as a co-author. So one thing we've been working on, we've done a lot of work on um, over the years, is education more generally. Okay, So not just higher education. Think about education. And it's a question that academics have been asking for decades. And the question is, right, how much does education impact upon your later life outcomes okay so how much does it affect your earnings your employment your health this sort of thing and policymakers of course are really interested in this because the government pays for education in this country so explicitly for um, pretty much everyone from the time you start school through to age 18 the government funds all of this education and then even in higher education it funds a fair bit through writing off debt etc etc and so it's a, a massively important policy question how much does education impact on your outcomes? But there's a fairly big literature on this. I mean, it's not something that's new, right? You know, a lot of people have been working in this field for quite some time. Dare I say, 
since the 1970s. So what are you doing? What's your twist? Okay, so a lot of people have been working on this, and the reason why, I think, is because it's really, really difficult to get the an answer, right? So you might think naively that, okay, well, all we need to do is just go and look at a load of people, look at their education level, look at their earnings, and compare them and see, okay, look, this person who's got a bit more education earns this much more, so that's the effect of education. But you will be wrong, because here's the problem. The people who choose to get more education have other characteristics as well, right? Generally, so it might be uh, that they have more natural abilities, you know, however we measure that, uh, and they would have earned more money even without that extra education because of this natural ability. But they also choose to get more education. So because of that, we don't know when we look at people with different levels of education, we don't know how much of that difference in earnings is down to the difference in education and how much is down to the fact that the people with the more education have these other characteristics, whether it's ability or drive, ambition, whatever it is, that also is rewarded in the labour market. So this is kind of this nature-nurture fundamental question here and, and it really comes down to this concept of causality, right? What is the causal effect of education on something? And that, that turns out to be quite hard to measure. Yeah, so it's it's that's the question. And for policymakers, again, it's really key, right? Because if actually the education doesn't make any difference whatsoever, then, you know, we don't want to be uh, pumping lots of money into education if it doesn't actually do anything for people. Yeah, just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Abolish yeah. it. I yeah. mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess the true answer is somewhere in between, right? There's not a zero causal effect, but it's not all causal effect. And so it's working out, okay, how much is um, the actual causal effect and how much is the noise, how much is the extra uh, that's associated with the people who choose extra education. Mm. So we have a problem, and what we would really like to do is something a bit like if we had a new drug and someone wants to work out, okay, well, how effective is the drug? Then you're just going to randomise some people to get the drug, some people not get the drug. Yeah, that's right. So that's what they do with medical trials, right? So some people get the placebo, some people get the drug, and then you look at, you know, who lives, who dies, that kind of thing. Yeah, but hard to do with education, though. Yeah, that, uh, Parents yeah. might object. And parents might object. I think getting it through an ethics board is going to be quite tricky. But, yeah, so exactly this. So we can't do a randomized controlled trial uh, like you would do with a drug. So what some very clever economists worked out kind of a couple of decades ago is what you can do is try to find a situation that's happened naturally uh, that leads to some sort of variation like that, some kind of random variation in education levels. And so what people have done and what we've done and what many others have done in the, in the UK and in other countries is look at times when the government has changed the minimum age at which you can leave schooling. So the most recent time this was done in the UK in terms of secondary education was 1972. So in 1972, you could leave school at the age of 15. Okay, So in, in, in modern school years, that would be at the end of year 10. You could leave school at the end of year 10. But in 1972, they raised this. So for the people um, from 1st of September 1972, it was changed. So you had to be 16, Okay, so the end of year 11. So people were forced to stay in school for an extra year. Yeah. They basically, you know, gun to your head, sit, stay, finish the year, and then you can leave. Yeah, not quite the gun to the head but it's a good point you know it was properly enforced okay so if you didn't go to school if you tried to leave at 15 someone would find you and you would be made to go back to school right so 
everybody born from 1st of September 1957 was affected by this, and anyone born before that wasn't affected by it. Okay, so what that does is create this natural kind of variation. So you've got, you know, these kids, the school year, it was kind of arbitrary, right, that it was that particular school year where it was introduced. And so what you've got is a natural, what they call a natural experiment. So you can look at, okay, here's the outcomes for the people who had, who could leave at 15. Here's the outcomes for the people who had to stay to 16. You've got a one-year difference there in education, and it's nothing to do with the people's choice. So it's, it can't be related to their other characteristics, their ambition, their ability. It's down to the government mandate the rules and just enforcing it. exactly so yeah. the government changed the rules so we can use that and exploit that and look at okay so how do their earnings differ and we've got a much cleaner um, measure of how education affects earnings okay and how do you use this then in, in in your in your most recent work okay so as you said and and it's been pointed out this has been used quite a lot in not just in the uk but in other countries every country has raised its its minimum school leaving age at certain times but what we've done that's slightly different is we've said, okay, well, let's have a look at how this affects people over the whole course of their, their lifetime. And let's go back to the first point when they start entering the labor market at age 18. And let's just compare those two school cohorts and look at how their earnings evolve over time. And what's really interesting, I think, and hopefully um, journal editors will uh, agree, top journal editors will agree with this, is that what we found um, is that there's a negative effect as well as a positive. So overall, we think as economists, you know, giving people extra education, that's going to improve their... Generally, yeah. We yeah. would think there's positive outcomes associated with staying in school for an extra year, right? I yeah. mean, that's a natural assumption. Yeah, and we do it's find... Yeah, we, we hope so, and, and we do find that. But what we also point out is that at the beginning of your career, that here's the thing, if you're in school, you're not in the labour market. Okay, so there's a kind of cost there, an opportunity cost of, of being in the labour market. And so when you look at people, mostly um, when you're in the labour market and you look at someone who's in the school year above you, they're one year older like on average. But what happened with this reform is that once people got into the labour market, the affected school cohort, they're in the labour market and the year before they're one year older, but they're also two years more experienced because they've been in the labour market, not just the one year, they've been in that other year. That extra year. That, that extra the year. Missed, right. And that really matters. If you're someone who's left school at the minimum age, fairly low level of education, fairly low skill, then experience in the labour market really matters there. Okay. So what you're saying is that the people who were forced to stay on at school till 16 and then dropped out because they wanted to drop out early yeah. anyway would have faced a labour market where actually they had almost no experience just just some basic qualifications and they're competing against children who are slightly older but have a lot more experience yeah relatively they've got a lot more experience and so you get this negative effect on on earnings at the beginning but then as good human capital labor economists would think okay that extra human capital that extra education they've got should tell over the long run and that's exactly what we find so as you are longer in the labor market that initial lack of experience becomes less and less important because you're accruing experience as you go. Um, and then that extra human capital that you've got kind of kicks in and takes over and, and your earnings catch up and, and that's all you know positive uh, from the policy. I guess that's interesting because you know it, it, it raises the question you know when we have these kind of reforms do people really think about the negative effect as well you know what happens if you force something in quotation marks good on somebody actually is there some sort of hidden negative effect that that may have some lasting effect throughout their lives absolutely and and there's other papers I've recently um, read some papers uh, not published yet but who, where people have looked at okay well are there any 
negative uh, mental health consequences on these young people who were kind of forced to stay in school. And there's this whole question of, yeah, um, what's the effect of someone restricting your liberty? Uh, and th that kind of suggested that, yeah, there is some negative uh, longer-term mental health consequences of being forced to stay in school against your will. So it's really interesting, I think, our paper and this other, you know, other papers looking at this, that you know, what are the kind of almost unintended consequences of, of these policies? It's kind of reforms. And I guess it's quite topical given the raising of the participation age. You know, we're kind of forcing people to stay in school 17 to 18. Yeah, so, so. That's, that's something that, uh, again, that's another thing I've been working on is looking at, okay, what's the effect of, that's a more recent reform. It's not quite the same. It wasn't quite raising the school leaving age. It was raising what they call the education participation age. So you don't have to be in school. You can be in another training, training provider. Yeah, yeah it's nuanced. kind of, it's a bit more nuanced, a bit more woolly and, and actually... Uh, so far, we're finding that the effects, as you might expect, you know, not so big an effect. And most young people remained in, in some kind of education after 16 anyway. So you're really looking at the very end of the distribution. And, and so, so far, we're finding actually not much of an effect of that. But you're working on something else that's also quite interesting. And that's, that's to do with genes? Yeah. So you want to so talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Because I'm so not quite I sure how talk, that works. <clears throat> I can talk a little bit about that. So here's the thing. This was looking at what's the causal effect of education, trying to untangle you know, the causal effect of education on earnings and looking at that over the lifetime. And the other thing, you, know, you could look at all sorts of things, right? So we care about how does education affect your earnings, but we also care how does it affect your health, how does it affect your happiness? And we've talked, you know, we've talked about health, we've talked about the economics of happiness. And again, it's one of those things. Educated people tend to be healthier, tend to be happier, but how much of that is down to the education and how much of it is down to just the fact that the people who choose more education are generally health, you know, choose a healthier lifestyle anyway. They would have been healthier even. Yeah, exactly. So, again, it's trying to pin that down. And from a policy point of view, again, it's important because if there are health benefits of more education, then that has implications then for NHS and budgets and blah, blah. OK, so. We've looked at one natural experiment here, the um, the raising of the school leaving age. I guess just just to make a point about this natural experiment we keep talking about, one of the problems is it's kind of defined in time, right? And as we progress through time, this this population, we're always looking at the same population, same cohorts, they're kind of getting older, it's kind of becoming history. So, you know, how much more can this old data, this old reform tell us about our presence? Yeah. So present? That, yeah, so that's one of the problems, right? So this is a cohort we're born in the, in the late 50s, so... Again, there's that relevance, but also it's a particular education level, right? We're, we can only talk about, okay, what's the effect of education at the minimum amount? It doesn't tell us, okay, if you go to university, how does it affect your earnings, okay? That's another project. But, you know, we, we can't answer the more general question of if you take a random person on the street, give them one more year of schooling, whatever number they've got to start with, what is the effect on their on their outcomes? So... We're always looking for these other natural experiments, any kind of like variation that would allow us to answer a more general question. And one thing that I've been working on with some uh, epidemiologists at uh, University of Bristol uh, is using genes, as you say. So the way this works is it's quite incredible, really. The geneticists and people studying genomics have coded up like the whole uh, human genome right so yeah, yeah that human genome project yeah, from, so the, uh, yeah. yeah human genome project and they look at all all these genes and look at the associations between certain genes or certain forms of genes so i'm going to very quickly run out of my, of my understanding of all, all the kind of fine uh, genetics of this but okay so we all have genes 
and we all have sometimes slight variations in genes, right? And so what these big studies do is look at, okay, what do certain genes and certain variant forms of genes, what do they correlate with? What are they associated with? And it's, it's crazy the amount of stuff that they've done. So you can think, okay, there's genes that are associated with height, for example, or uh, BMI, or um, birth weight, things like that. Things, physical things think quite obvious. Yeah. But they've also looked at genes for things like smoking, you know, whether you are likely to end up smoking, how intensely you'll smoke, like how many cigarettes you'll smoke, right? Um, alcohol dependence, things like this. And also other things like intelligence and measures of ability. And okay. it's a bit like the old a Apple advert of, you know, whatever you want to do. Oh, there's an app for that. Well, whatever trait you can think of and whatever, you know, health condition you can think of, often, oh, there's a gene for that, there's right? Or, or there's a gene variant um, for that. And one of the things they found gene variants for is educational attainment. So they find that certain little variants of genes actually are associated with doing well in education. So again, I don't, I don't so, understand. So that's the nature part of what we were yeah, talking about. Yeah, so there's earlier. some kind of nature bit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so what we've done uh, is looking this. There's this big data set called the UK Biobank, which has thousands, hundreds of thousands of UK um, residents, and they've had all sorts of health measures taken. And we know about their education, and we also have got their genes like kind of coded up, so we know if they have these variants, 74 variants that are associated with. Um, education attainment. So what we can do is give them a kind of score that reflects how many of those variants they have and and then see how that affects education. And it's it's pretty cool. You see that, yeah, if you have a higher score on this kind of education gene score, mm -hmm. then you do have more education. You know, you do end up getting more education. And it's That's a it's really a kind of it's a natural experiment because the gene is there from birth. It's yeah. not like it changes somehow as you get more education. It's it's defined that birth, and that's bam, that's it. And that's the perfect thing about it is that you can't have a, some kind of reverse causation. You can't have the education causing the genes because the genes are there from birth. Mm. And which gene you get from your each parent, that's a kind of random. It's like the perfect random experiment at conception. It's really and the perfect natural experiment because yeah. it's li literally at conception you get either the the parent, uh, the mum or the dad gene. And that's, you know, you get one or the other, and that's random. And so it feels like that's a kind of random, getting towards that kind of randomized experiment. Yeah. And so so we look at this. and that Sounds really interesting. What about the results? So the results does it correlate with what we found? Actually, yeah. So it's really interesting because what we've looked at is that one particular education margin going from having 10 years to 11 years of schooling. This affects the whole distribution. So if you've got more of these genes, it basically shifts everybody up. Okay, so it's not just one point in the distribution. So this should get us more towards answering the question, you take an average person, they get an extra year of schooling, what's the effect? And what's really interesting is find absolutely no results whatsoever. No, 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 <laughs> joke. Okay, so what's, what, what is interesting is that we do find results. We do find that having more education affects certain outcomes, like it affects your um, BMI, it affects chance of diabetes it affects hypertension so kind of like blood pressure yeah. and what's really interesting is that the effects are very similar so we compare what's the effect of the the raising of school leaving age that extra education how does that affect outcomes in health and what's the effect of this this gene score that affects education how does that education then affect health and a lot of the results are very similar 
that's good. And so that's 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 cool because oh, yeah. you know previously we've only been able to talk about like one education margin, and this should be getting us much more towards uh, yeah. here's here's the average effect of of education on health. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. And also, I really like the idea of this whole interdisciplinarity there that you're crossing across subject boundaries. Yeah, it's and kind of using, like I say, I very quickly kind of get to a point where I, I have no idea what's going on with this, <laughs> this genetics, but that's okay because the, the, the guys I'm working with um, in Bristol, they, they do know about that stuff. Yeah. And so uh, between us, we kind of work on these things and, and, and get some answers. Nice, I like it, I like it. I look forward to reading it. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, again, hopefully the journal editors will find it equally as interesting. And, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll meet and find it very interesting. And uh, yeah, so you can read it then. But that's more than enough about what uh, I've been doing recently. Um, so tell me, friends, what have you been working on? What am I working on? Well, I'm working in, again, that's the first thing. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's been difficult in the last couple of years with this management role, but I am working on something very interesting. That's a continuation of our social mobility project that we finished a while ago. And just to give you sort of, I guess, the narrative where the literature is at, it's a long discussion over the last two decades about what is this, not only how do you measure, but what, what, what is the status of social fluidity or social mobility in the UK and over time, right? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it steady? And there's been a whole debate around that. And it's kind of, I don't want to say it's finished because there are different points of views, but it's been explained. The differences have been explained. And the innovation isn't really there anymore in continuously just updating the social mobility statistics and saying things are getting slightly better, slightly worse. Um, the next step on the scientific front is to dig down and to say, all right, okay, we have these national estimates for social mobility, i.e. to what extent are you as a child connected to your parents? But uh, now, given sort of new data sources, big data, you know, we're moving to this area, um, there's, there are a few teams, including myself, that are digging down into sort of the regional aspects of social mobility. Right, so that's really interesting because I think we've, we've talked a bit about this in the past that with the whole uh, Brexit vote and this sort of thing where people, and it's similar in America with, with Trump being elected, that if you look at the national statistics, oh, you know, the economy's doing well, things are improving, you know, kids are doing well, doing better than their parents, social mobility is um, getting better perhaps and uh, in certain domains anyway. You look at the national picture and like, oh, that's great. But then when you look, there are kind of inequalities, there is a distribution and, and that can be regional. That's right, that's right. So the first question was really, okay, going from the national level, UK, Scotland, that kind of thing, or, uh, you know, let's have a look at the regions, sort of the 10 statistical regions, sorry, government office regions, as we call them these days. Um, and you can already see some variation there, some high-level variation. London, for example, sticks out quite prominently through, throughout most of the data sets and through most of the studies that, that, that are doing this at the moment, including my own. And you can kind of see the sort of London effect sort of quite strongly there. Uh, in that there are just more jobs there, high-level jobs, professional managerial jobs, but also the fluidity. It's more fluid in London, so you're not quite as connected to your parents as you are in other areas of the country. So is this people who've grown up in London, in and around London, there's just more opportunity f to kind of move up the social ladder? Yeah, that seems to be the story. I mean, there's questions about why, which we're not quite at that point yet. At the moment, uh, the, the people who are working on this, the teams, it's more about just showing the evidence, you know, doing the data analysis. There's a lot of data analytics behind this uh, and, yeah. and just sort of quality of data, which might not sound very interesting to the layman, yeah. but it's quite important to people like us who are trying to just present some robust evidence that, that is credible. But that's always the first most important stage almost is just describing 
the situation and accurately yeah. and reliably. That's right. That's right. So there's nothing fancy here. So we've been talking about uh, causality uh, that requires methodology underneath all that. It's quite a lot of complicated statistics that, that we work on, which is sort of driven by well, econometric and mathematical innovations as well. Um, the work I'm doing is pretty much very simple. You know, you're dare I say your average GCSE student would understand this but the data quality underneath it is quite hard to um, to deal with these are really big complicated data sets many many gigabytes you really have to be careful with your coding there's a lot of coding underneath this so it's just about making sure the sort of the scientific rigor is in the in presenting the descriptives really and that takes quite a lot of work so we're doing this at the moment and what you see is this kind of this London effect kicking out uh, quite quite clearly so that's that's all quite interesting that is interesting and it but it makes me think okay so if we have this aggregate statistic and then London is doing well you know so London's kind of higher yeah. than the average right so that must mean that somewhere I mean London's north, very big north, it's the north <laughs> it's the not right so you yeah so sorry for anybody who's listening in the north it's the north um, it, it is it is that old you know north south divide uh, you can see it in the data you see it lots of within quality statistics and labor market statistics you see north versus south and regions versus rural areas but you can also now see it in the social mobility statistics at least what we're generating but let me tell you sort of the most recent I guess, statistical innovation here, uh, or at least data data innovation, is that we can dig even further than that. So looking at the 10... Even governor- further north? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, even within the regions, okay. right? So let's say we have our 10 regions, we find some variations, and this is kind of north-south divide, and certainly at the moment it looks like London. It's more about London versus everything else, but there's also north-south in there, right? But once you dig a little bit deeper, we've actually managed to code up districts, um, local authority districts. There's about 400 of them in the UK, around 40 per region. So imagine just taking a region, I don't know, the northeast, and just dividing it into sort of 40 little chunks. So you're pretty much looking around small cities and, yeah. and, and large rural areas, that kind of thing, right? And what you see is actually a large amount of variation within the regions. So... This I really didn't quite expect. So I thought if I drew a heat map of the UK with all these little 400 regions, it would be quite smooth. So you would, I mean, depending on how you color it, London would be green. You'd have the sort of green thing radiating out of London. Then it turns red as you go further north, right? And it would be all quite, quite a smooth kind of color map. But actually, if you look within the regions you see lots of variations, even within the regions. And there's variations. I mean, it can be kind of, you know, 100% variations. You go from a coefficient of about 0.2 to 0.4, right? Which is kind of a doubling in the kind of parent-child sort of relationship, right? Intensity, how far you can move away from your father or your mother. And you see that happens in all the regions. So although London on average is doing slightly better, even in London you see a lot of differences once you divide it into 40 little chunks. And that is really quite striking. So it's much more nuanced than just a kind of north-south, rural, urban, London versus the rest. Even within those regions, you're getting this kind of variation. And is the next step trying to then think about, okay, well, what's explaining this, right? Within You're thinking, this is literally the thought process that went through me this morning, right? What might be driving this? That is the kind of the key question, uh, and uh, that will take a while to to delve into. We're not there yet because there's a lot of data preparation to do. But you know, you can make some initial hypothesis, and you know, I would, for example, say maybe it's rural versus urban areas. But then, 
why would that be the case in London, right? There might be something else driving it. Maybe it's um, some sort of um, poverty levels in the case of multiple deprivation. Maybe it's to do with job. Maybe it's to do with the local education quality. Uh, you know, what is the average level of education? Well, actually, part of our project also later down the line is to investigate the effect of grammar schools. Right. Right. So um, having these indicators and being able to figure out, okay, there's lots of variations within the regions in the UK. Um, you know, going back to Theresa May and this whole grammar school debate that we've had quite a couple of times on this on this program, there's a question, actually, are grammar schools somehow driving this or making this worse, right? So my personal questions for such question in the, all of this is, and once we have all these little regional indicators of social mobility, how does that correlate with whether there's a grammar school there or not, and whether that grammar school disappeared, because actually a lot of them disappeared uh, throughout the 70s, right? So I guess there's policy implications across a whole raft of things, because you can think of maybe it's something to do with industrial policy, you know, what happened in these particular regions when industry has has left, whether that was in the kind of 80s with coal mining or, or steel or whatever it is, whether there's been regeneration, how that's, you know, how that's played out and whether that is what's driven these kind of long-term relationships or if it is something like it's the schooling system that's particularly good or bad in, the, in a particular area. That's right, that's right. I mean, so there's lots of interesting questions here, and I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's asking these questions, but the interesting innovation here is that we've gotten to a point uh, where the data quality is able to sustain these academic questions. So I would say 10, 20 years ago, the data quality wasn't there. And although we don't talk about data a lot here, a lot of what we do is actually underpinned by improvements in data quality and data analytics. I think that's really key when we want to look at these geographical variations, is that if you just have a national survey which goes and talks to 10,000 people, that sound, you know, sounds a lot, but once you start digging down into, okay, 10,000 people, 5,000 men, 5,000 women... That's and then all of them are working, so you lose another couple of people, and then you cut into four hundred pieces. Yeah, you know, there's nobody and, left. And, yeah, you're getting like one person yeah. in, in in each area, in each category, and and you can't say anything exactly. uh, with statistical exactly. precision about anything, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess the improvement has been over time that now, whether it's education, where we've talked before about these big data sets where you can link up people's higher education and their their schooling and and on into the labour market, and you get everybody you get a kind of census of everybody um or if it's regional information um about social mobility about earnings levels if you can get that if you can get that kind of census the big administrative data um then you're able to cut the data much finer into these yeah 400 chunks and and still have lots of people within there to try and explain yeah there's real value there there's real value in sort of digging down a little bit i mean it's interesting because at the higher level you're kind of bouncing into these idea of ethics and, you know, big brothers watching you and, you know, should we be gathering all this data and what are we doing with all this data? And, of course, you hear about data breaches through Facebook and Google and all this kind of stuff. So it, it, it's interesting. I know certainly the Office of National Statistics takes data security extremely seriously. I mean, accessing the data I'm accessing, one of the reasons why not many people are doing it is because simply the data access is ridiculously hard, right? Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's real value in big data, but... On the other side, I, I can understand why people have concerns. Sounds like uh, a trade-off between uh, having access to that data and being able to use it for kind of useful policy purposes and the kind of concerns, as you say, about the big brother, what's happening to my data, how is it being used. Uh, I think I think we've moved 
uh, in a positive direction, certainly with the government, with the kind of national statistics towards uh, an understanding that there's real value in being able to, uh, socially and, and policy-wise, uh, to be able to use that data that the government's already collecting and, and to be able to link it up and to address these really policy-relevant questions. Uh, so we've definitely moved uh, in, a, in a positive way there. We're not quite at the um, Scandinavian uh, nirvana for data uh, where you get everybody's uh, administrative data sets all linked up. And I, I, I mean, obviously, they still have ethics processes and data protocols and, and what have you. But um, often when you see these uh, elaborate papers from the Scandinavians where they said, oh, yeah, so we use the registry data on this and this. And uh, I mean, it's a good thing that we've moved towards uh, closer towards that uh, because we're already seeing the real benefit for researchers and then out of that for policymakers of, of being able to access that data. I think definitely so. I mean, just to sort of conclude this, as somebody, you and me, we both peer review papers, yeah. right? So part of our job is to make comments on other people's work. And you can definitely see over the last, since I finished my PhD, you can't publish bog standard papers with survey data and regressions anymore. It's, it's becoming really tough to, to, to claim scientific value from what we did 20 years ago. And you have to be more innovative now. You have to have either really good data quality or really good statistics or perhaps a combination of both. So, you know, from a scientific point of view, things are definitely moving forward. And, you know, we're, we're, we're still pushing the boundary a little bit. <laughs> well, we try. A little, yeah, we try. A little bump in the, uh, in, the, in the frontier. So, Matt, I think that's all we have time for. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's equally been uh, a pleasure to talk to you too, friends. We should do this more often. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Buscher. And we'll be back with more soon.